In this episode, I'm going to take listener feedback. I know that usually we talk about every single package on our Slackware Linux install disk, but this time we're just going to just listen to listener feedback. That is feedback from you, dear listener. Actually, from two very specific listeners. Uh, one is Lost in Bronx and one is Deep Geek. They both happened to give me feedback recently, and I figured I would just take both of their feedbacks, plus my feedback to their feedback, essentially. That's what it is when I take listener feedback. Uh, and we'll, we'll make an impromptu Information Underground episode. Now, if you don't know what Information Underground is, it is a series that Lost in Bronx and Deep Geek and myself were doing Although I guess I mean technically we're still doing. We never we never ama- announced its its closure. So I guess technically it's an ongoing series, even though we haven't done an episode in ten years. But the the series was just whenever we would have a topic that we wanted to sort of uh, discuss with one another, we would do it in a podcast form where one person would present a, an argument, kind of. And then the other two would sort of, after the argument was presented for like half the show, or ideally maybe a quarter of the show, and then the other two would 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 respond. And so it wasn't it wasn't quite like a debate, but it was it was sort of a structured discussion, which which I quite like actually. Structured discussions for me tend to be more to my liking than sort of the uh, the panel show or the uh, the round table show where people are just talking and, and presenting half-baked ideas without really forget, you know, if you, you get off on tangents, you forget to follow up on something. I don't know. I, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that the structure is something that I quite like and that's what Information Underground provided. It was a little structured conversation about a topic. This is um, not really that. I'm just saying that it happens to be the same three people. But I am mentioning Information Underground specifically because you may as well know about it if you don't. And this might be a good excuse for you to check out Gopher Space if you haven't before. So if you're on Slackware right now, open up a terminal and type in links. You can use either L-Y-N-X or L-I-N-K-S. Both work. They're two separate browsers. They're internet browsers for your terminal. Interactive, I should say, because, I mean, wget is an internet browser for your terminal as well. It's just not as interactive. So if you type in links space gopher.info-underground.net, then you'll be taken to a gopher site. And if you've never been to a gopher site before, welcome to gopher space or gopher ground or whatever we call it. I don't really remember. I think it's gopher space. Whatever. Welcome to the gopher sphere. It's a quirky place where you really have to look around to find stuff. Um, but it is a, an awfully, uh, it's an entertaining place. So that now, if you, if you, if you haven't used Gopher before, check out info-underground, gopher.info-underground.net and, and see what you find. And, and a lot of this kind of ties into what I'm going to talk about in a tangential way, at least up front before the coffee break. So I'm going to take Lost in Bronx's feedback first. Now he, he spoke to me in person, not in person, but over in audio chat. We were speaking and, and he said, you know, there, there's a, for a very long time, there was a, a very specific win condition to sort of what we were going for in open source, or at least within the Linux world. Now, win condition, that's a term from gaming. If you don't know, it, it simply is the indicator of 
how do you know when to stop playing? Like in tic-tac-toe or knots and crosses, if you're in New Zealand or the UK, or maybe anywhere in the US, I don't know. Uh, but tic-tac-toe, knots and crosses. Um, you know when you've won because you've, you've lined up either three zeros or, or knots or three crosses or Xs. When they're three in a row, you have won, you can stop playing now. Now there's another condition to that game. And that's when the when the grid is full, then the game is over. Whether anyone has won or not, it has now a draw condition where the grid is full, nobody necessarily won, the game can no longer continue in this in this form because there's no more spaces in which to play. Now if you want to do like a rock, paper, scissor to kind of like break that tie, you could do that, but but otherwise the game is over. So there's a win condition and there's a draw condition. There is also a lose condition, which is pretty simple. And the lose condition is that someone else has acquired the win condition. So win condition for open source, what would that be? For a long time, for a lot of people, the win condition was to beat Microsoft. And this is reflected, I think, probably maybe most famously in Ubuntu's bug number one, which you can still view online on the Ubuntu um, custom bug tracker, bugs.launchpad.net slash Ubuntu slash plus bug slash one. Microsoft has a majority market share. Now this was famously closed by Mark Shuttleworth, the financier behind Canonical the company behind Ubuntu. He closed it way back in 2014. No, sorry, 2013. Uh, comment 1,834 of that bug is where you, could, you can view this if you want to. I'll put the link in the show notes probably. And it says, um, his words here, Personal computing today is a broader proposition than it was in 2004. Phones, tablets, wearables, and other devices are all part of the mix for our digital lives. From a competitive perspective, that broader market has healthy competition, with iOS and Android representing a meaningful share. Android may not be my or your first choice of Linux, but it is without doubt an open source platform that offers both practical and economic benefits to users and industry. So we have both competition a good representation for open source in personal computing. Even though we have only played a small part in that shift, I think it's important for us to recognize that the shift has taken place. So from Ubuntu's perspective, this bug is now closed. There is a social element to this bug report as well, of course. It served for many years, no, sorry, it served for many as a sort of declaration of intent. But it's better for us to focus our intent on excellence in our own right rather than our impact on someone else's product. In the many years since this bug was filed, we've figured out how to be, an am be amazing on the cloud, and I hope soon also how to be amazing for developers on their desktops and perhaps even for everyday users across that full range of devices. I would rather we find a rallying call that celebrates those insights and leadership. 
It's worth noting that today, if you're into cloud computing, the Microsoft IAAS team are both technically excellent and very focused on having all OSs, including Linux guests, Linux guests like Ubuntu, run extremely well on Azure, making them a pleasure to work with. Perhaps the market shift has played a role in that. Circumstances have changed. Institutions have adapted. So should we. Along those lines, it's good to reflect on how much has changed since 2004 and how fast it's changed. For Ubuntu, our goal remains to deliver fantastic experiences for developers, for people building out production infrastructure, and for end users on a range of devices. We are doing all of that in an environment that changes completely every decade, so we have to be willing to make big changes ourselves in our processes, our practices, our tools, and our relationship. Change this bug status is but a tiny example. Those are Mark Shuttleworth's words, his own closing statement on his own bug number one uh, for Ubuntu market. M Microsoft has the largest market share. So the, the thing about that is that I guess there was a win condition, a very clear win condition, which is uh, Microsoft has the the, the market share. Therefore, when Microsoft does not have the market share, then there's then we have won. Now, by comment 1834, Mark Shuttleworth has clearly changed the win condition. And that's important to recognize. I'm not saying that as a critique. I'm simply saying that the, the title of the bug was that Microsoft has the, the market share. And then the, the bug was closed with an, the acknowledgement that there's a new win condition. The, the implication of the title of the bug is that, you know, when you read it, you think, okay, so Microsoft has the market share of the desktop operating system market. That's, that's an important sort of part that we are all kind of, that, that's been omitted from that title. But I think most people who read that understand that that's the implication. Why is that the implication? Well, back in 2004, Microsoft wouldn't have had a market share on anything else. Uh, mobile phones didn't, I mean, they existed, but they, they nobody was talking about the OS that they were running because they didn't really run what we think of as an OS. Obviously, they had an operating system, an operating environment, but nobody talked about the OS of a phone. That was silly. So, because the phones, you just turned it on and, and there was like, it was like this LED, you know, grid of, of huge pixels that just you know, it gave you the basics. That was an OS, but nobody talked about it. I mean, people actually did. Symbian was a thing and, and so on, but whatever. That wouldn't have been the context in 2004. Certainly in 2004, Microsoft wouldn't have had the market share on servers. Uh, they still don't have that. They've never had that. So that wouldn't have been what we were talking about. So the thing that they had the market share of was desktop computers. So there is a strongly implied uh, um, clause to that title that says, saying that the win condition is that when Microsoft no longer has desktop market share, then we have won. But Mark Shuttleworth, again, not a critique, just noticing what's going on here. Mark Shuttleworth decided in 20, uh, what did I say, 14, 15, 13, um, that that win condition was too specific and that the, the playing field had changed and that it was no longer significant that Microsoft had market share of the desktop because the market share was the market was a lot bigger than just a desktop now. And I think he was kind of arguing in that statement, and I, ho I'm, 
hopefully not putting words into his mouth, but this is kind of how I'm reading it. I think his argument there is that people are are using more than just desktops now. And certainly a lot of people are using portable devices like mobile phones. And it is just a fact that Android has the market share on mobile devices. And Android being based right now currently on Linux and then on Linux, that meant that effectively Linux had dominated the market share for personal computing, at least if you're looking at mobile uh, m- mobile devices. Is that is that what we wanted? He, I mean, he acknowledges in his post explicitly that that might not be what you wanted. That might not be your personal choice, your first choice of Linux. But, I mean, it's still there. It's still a win. And it's big and it's a big enough of a win that he considered it at least grounds to close that bug. Now, a lot of people, as if if you go to that site and look at that bug, you'll find that a lot of people had thoughts about the closing of that bug, and that the fight ha- wasn't over, and that the win condition hadn't been met. And again, I think the 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 sort of the problem with that bug that you wouldn't have you couldn't have thought of in that time is that the title wasn't specific enough. It didn't say what Microsoft had the market share of and maybe the comments in the original bug did i don't i don't know i I didn't actually look at that part strangely um but the the, i think the point is whether or not it's specified for some people because that win condition got shifted there at the end for some people winning on the mobile market wasn't enough to close the bug for some people the fight is ongoing and and the win condition is to get microsoft away from market share on the desktop computer on desktops and laptops specifically we should probably be very specific um obviously so like is that the battle and if that's the battle why is that the battle but what lost in bronx told me over this audio chat Uh, that I started this whole story with, was that for a very long time, all of us in the uh, social Linux user group, like the the larger, you know, the internet-based user group of Linux, well, specifically the the podcasting, uh, because that's how we were connecting at the time, Uh, and the time being like, I don't know, 2009, you know, through, I don't know, 2015 or 16. I mean, it's ongoing, but it, certainly it's changed since then. But during this 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 certain time, and this, I guess this actually extends beyond podcasting. So yeah. So anyway, on the internet, people were vaguely aware of Linux or very aware of Linux, depending on what sites you went to. And if you were looking for Linux on the internet during that time especially, you could count on every year there being a big, big story on all the websites that would cover Linux, saying, predicting that this year, the one just starting, this year was going to be, quote, the year of the Linux desktop. That was a phrase that people said all the time. I don't really know that many people who said it, but tech journalists wrote it a lot. And and it, be, it became a phrase that was as common as it was hated, because you, you just got tired of hearing it. And you would hear it, like I say, once a year at least, because every new year someone would write that obligatory article. But then anytime something v- even slightly sort of big in the Linux world would happen, like, I don't know, a company announces that one of their laptops might someday have Linux on it, people would write the obligatory article about how this laptop that might someday have Linux on it, uh, signals the beginning of 
the year of the Linux desktop. Or, you know, something like, something benign, like GNOME releases a new version of, of its desktop, or KDE has a, an update. There's that article again, could this be the year of the Linux desktop? It's used over and over and over again, and I think people thought it was kind of silly because a lot of people understood that that phrase had no meaning. What is the year of the Linux desktop? What does that mean? Does that mean that it's just a, a year where the desktop is is nicer than it was before? Well, then I guess every year is the year of the Linux desktop, right? Or does it mean the year, and I, and I think this is what it really people really thought it meant, but does it mean that this is the year you are going to go into your favorite computer store, whether it's uh, Office... I'm not in the U.S. anymore, so I don't know the big Office stores. Is it Office Max still? Is that a thing? Um, here in New Zealand, it would be Warehouse Stationery, or PB Tech probably would be the, the one that I would go to. Um, so, you know, your big, your best buy, wh whatever big stores where computers are sold are wh what those, whatever those stores are. You walk into that store, and you look over at that laptop section you know the one and and you go over there and and a whole row maybe even all the laptops are running linux well maybe there's like a token windows machine way in the back off in the corner on on that model that's that's an older model anyway you don't you you don't want that oh but it's on sale right now but yeah it's not worth it um can't give them away is that the experience that would be the year of the linux desktop I don't know. Nobody knows. And that's kind of the problem with that phrase, that term. But I think, I mean, certainly for me personally, like, I think that would be a a weird, that that would weirdly be a win condition for me. Like if I walked into PB Tech and then to Warehouse Stationery and, and I went to the laptop and it would have to be more than just one store, you know, I'd have to see it several times. Um, and I should put a number on it. You know, I should really put a number on it because otherwise I'm being vague, but I'll, I'll be vague because I'm not, I'm not filing a bug. Um, I go over to the laptop section and yeah, they're all running Linux. There's like a, not, the Linux doesn't have to be Slackware, but, but it does have to be one that like you would know. Like it, it can't be some weird special distribution developed by that company for their laptop and it's not quite a desktop and it's kind of weird and it's sort of their vision of like what consumer electronics might look like someday. No, I want just GNOME stock GNOME desktop. I want pains me to say it, but Fedora on some laptop, and I, I say it pains me to say it because that poor person who buys that laptop, laptop is going to have to update the minute they get it home, uh, and then again in six months or nine months, whatever their cycle is. Um, but, you know, like there, there'd be a SUS laptop and uh, Fedora and, oh, Ubuntu, no, not Ubuntu. Let's just go, like, let's cut to the chase and go Linux Mint. Uh, and elementary, we could have a whole line of elementary ones, you know, maybe. Whatever. You know, like, that, or I guess, heck, I mean, let's put System 76 out, finally. Let's actually just put them in all the stores. So anyway, the um, the the whole line of, of laptops running Linux, that would be, and desktops, I want desktops in there as well, that would be a win condition for me. Then I would really know something had changed. Like, oh my gosh, like Microsoft actually just closed the doors on Windows. That's crazy. I never thought it would happen, but they've done that, and now the, the, all the laptop manufacturers need an OS, and they're just putting a Linux onto their laptops, finally. Wow, that's great. That kind of thing. Or maybe Microsoft didn't end Windows, but they ended their OEM Windows. They do, they're just like, you gotta, if you want Windows, you have to buy it, you have to come download it uh, on your Xbox, and then transfer it over to your laptop. That's just how we do things now. That would be fine. That would be a, a, a 
a notable win condition for me. But I think a lot of us, at least, you know, if, if you're of a certain vintage, uh, uh, you may have gotten sort of the, the treatment, the, the preconditioning that in order for open source and Linux specifically to win, there has to be the year of the Linux desktop. And, and like a lot of these other kind of like signifiers, these notifications, these, these things that trigger the win condition for us, the, the, this has not been well-defined. Year of the Linux desktop cannot ever happen because nobody knows what it is. No one, it's not a thing. We just didn't define that term, which, I mean, that's the, that's the classic problem of a buzzword, and, and that's a buzzword, or it's a buzz phrase, I guess. So that's, that was what Lost in Bronx brought to me, and I, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of validity there. I think that that's definitely something that, that, that we as a community need to struggle with. Whether or not you got the treatment, the preconditioning of wait for the year of the Linux desktop, whether or not you got that, I think in a way that's what we're all waiting for, is this vague, hazy, kind of like undefined condition in our own lives where it feels like Linux and open source dominates the computing scenarios we are involved with. And and that means for you personally, like when you go, you know, to, to visit your family and they ask you the, the inevitable computer question, support question, are they asking you about a Windows or a Mac issue, or are they asking you about something you actually know, something about Linux? I guess that's what I was talking about, really, in episode 521, when I was talking about community being the the, the reasonable answer to how how we respond to the concept of whether we are winning or losing, because really we don't have control over the market share. We don't have control over the computer store up the street and what they have out on their laptop display, or maybe we do. Maybe you're the manager of one of those computer stores. Maybe you could put out laptops with Linux on the display. Maybe you'll have won then, but, I mean, are people going to then buy those laptops? I don't know. So, we have a, in other words, we don't have control over what people purchase. So, there's there's really no way to sort of come down with that sort of, I win hammer and just beat everyone into submission. That's just not how reality works, and it's not how it should work really. Like, we don't actually want that. But what we do have control over is is the community that we ourselves build. It's not always easy, but, I mean, you can find other people on the internet, at the very least, to talk to about Linux and to find, you know, ways to support each other when you're using Linux. That's something that's possible. It can be difficult. It's it's never easy, I don't think. I mean, I, I keep thinking of pretty much any task that involves more than one person. It's basically like forming a rock band, if you've ever tried to do that, or or getting married. You know, I mean, it's, it's really, really difficult to find the people who you are sort of compatible with, I guess. And, and that can be, that can be a struggle. And, and then there's the balance of like, how, how much, how much do you value the things that you, you agree on? And how much can you ignore the stuff that you vehemently disagree on? So there's the, the usual social kind of struggle there, but it is possible. You can find people you can you can locate communities some that exist some that don't exist yet that you just build from scratch you know you you can you can go out you can form these communities you can build up this world for yourself where the 
people you're talking to computers about also happen to be running Linux. And then if you, if you, if you do that, if you work at that for a year or two, then one day you wake up and you realize, oh my gosh, open source is totally won. Like all I ever talk about is open source. Like that's the only outlet of computer conversation I ever have. That's a really interesting place to be. It happens to be the place that I, that I am in and have been in for about, I don't know, 15 years now, which it's, it's been nice. I mean, it really has, but it's gone in waves too. It hasn't, it isn't, you know, like everything else in life, it's, it's gone through a lot of change. Like I was just talking about earlier, like there was a a very specific kind of podcast scene for a while on the internet. I mean, it's still there, but it's it's different. The shows have come, shows have gone, and and then it became sort of like, well, now I'm working in Linux. I mean, I'm working at companies that that use Linux, so so now that becomes my outlet for talking about computers. And oh, by the way, we happen to be talking about Linux because that's what we're all using, and that's that's what we have control over. There there. There's, there's no other way to force other things to comply with how we want to see the world. And, and it's a good thing because we, we, we don't agree on what the world should look like. I mean, you know, maybe under certain circumstances, I would insist that the win condition would be that all of those laptops at PB Tech or Best Buy or whatever exists now um, would be running Slackware only, only Slackware. But someone else might think, well, that's really not the ideal solution. It, it really ought to be just Linux Mint, which actually I personally wouldn't agree with. But pretend like I was really going a hard line, Slackware only. Um, someone else Linux Mint. Someone else. Actually, we should just go BSD because Linux System D blah. Um, let's go BSD and say, you know, so, so there would, there, we wouldn't even be able to agree on, on what that, what that community would look like, that big global community of like, everyone has to use open source now at the penalty of death. Um, that's just not what we're really aiming for. So building that community yourself is really, I think, more productive and more constructive than trying to solve Ubuntu's bug number one, or trying to attain that mythical, quote, year of the Linux desktop, close quote, could ever be. That felt like a pretty good close to that topic. So let's go get some coffee, and we'll take some listener feedback from DeepGeek. coffee this is different uh so i went up the street uh, went up the went up the normal grocery store up the street for some coffee beans and usually the sol- the the cheapest coffee in the store is jed's j-e-d just like the the editor and this time it wasn't for whatever reason like jed jed's was a little bit expensive this time i mean not expensive but i mean more m- more than usual and there was another brand that happened to be cheaper than usual and this was mckinsey mckinsey's coffee and it, it's um it, it had like a plaid sort of design on the 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 bag so it's it's a very sort of appealing kind of almost Scottish looking coffee, which I don't know, do Scotland 
does Scotland have? I know that Scott modern Scotland has coffee. Was coffee a thing in Scotland? I, do they grow coffee beans there? I don't know. But McKinsey is selling coffee now. Now, McKinsey, it just so happens, uh, I know a McKinsey here in New Zealand, but he's up on the North Island. And I kind of wonder if he's related. Because in New Zealand, strangely enough, when you meet someone who, with, with like a specific last name, there's a high likelihood that that person is related to the other person with that last name. Like there's actually, like last names in New Zealand actually very frequently indicate relation than, whereas like in the U.S., where I'm originally from, in the USA, you don't, you would never assume that if you met a Smith in Pennsylvania, that that Smith might be related to a Smith you meet over in Ohio, or heck, just in one city over. It was still in Pennsylvania. I mean, it's just so huge there, and there are so many people, and certainly Smith has a common name, you just, you would just never make that assumption. I mean, and it doesn't have to be Smith, it could be any, you know, any other name. I mean, you just, unless it's a very, very unique name, you, you do not make assumptions about, oh, hey, you must be related to this other person I met the other day. You would never do that in the U.S., or at least I wouldn't. Maybe, maybe some people do, but I, I never thought that with anybody. Here, you can make that assumption. Like, if, if you meet a McKinsey up on the North Island, they're probably related to the McKinsey on the South Island. So who knows? Maybe I know the family, or maybe I know someone who is somehow related to... Oh, yeah, and I'm not trying to make a genealogical uh, claim here. I understand that probably, uh, ultimately, there are more relations than other people, you know, than people realize. Like, if you go far enough back, you can probably find, like, where the Smith line actually came to the USA and, and then branched off in several different directions. Um, or maybe there were several Smiths, probably several Smiths. But anyway, what I'm saying is I'm drinking McKinsey coffee, and it's very, very bold. It's a strong coffee. It's a strong brew. Now, I've been making it in my espresso maker, my stovetop espresso maker, and uh, so it, it is, you know, it is it is made stronger by the fact that it is an espresso. Um, but I, I drink it as an Americano, so I, I make a pot of this espresso. I pour ha about half into my cup and then fill up uh, the rest with boiling water, and, and that's how I have it. But this is really strong stuff. This is dark stuff not 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 the darkest i've had i've definitely had some some espresso you know expressly espresso uh, blends or whatever uh roasts i guess marketed as you know a very dark like espresso uh, those are fun to have sometimes in small amounts uh this this is bordering on yeah i might I don't know, I might start maybe more of like a quarter a cup of this stuff than maybe not a half of a cup. I mean, it's it's really, it is really strong, but it's good. It is really good. So that's what coffee I'm drinking today. Now let's talk about Deep Geek's email to me about some open source topics. He says, Hi Klaatu, just wanted to say that I found myself in great resonance with you regarding your editorial comments on the waste uh, that a huge amount of distributions represents. I think the future of Linux lies with Flatpak. I think it does so because it totally obliterates the need for repackaging at the distribution level, where time is money. It was Edward Snowden who remarked once in an interview, watch out when the decimal point moves to less expensive. When this happens, the economies demand change. Of course, he was speaking of how inexpensive modern surveillance is, 
but when looked at in philosophical purity, it can give us the writing on the wall about Linux in the future. If it costs you less than a tenth to maintain your distribution because you can totally shift the maintenance of major packages upstream, then the economies of the situation demand change. Okay, so this is Klaatu again. That That's part of his email. There's there's more, but that's the, well, that's definitely the hot take, right? I mean, that that's some some spicy stuff. It's something that I happen to 100% agree with. I've, I've believe I've said it on the show before, but I, I really strongly believe that just logically flat pack is the correct, the correct way. I don't think that flat pack itself is logically the correct way, but what it represents is the correct way. And it's, it's been the correct option for, for a very, very long time, probably since 2000, 2000, 2001, 2002, whatever like early, early 2000s, right? If not earlier. But I mean, okay, so there's an argument when Linux started 1991, 1992, for probably several years. And I don't know, because I wasn't aware of what a computer operating system even was back then. I was really not into technology. So I'm I'm no one to speak. I say I wasn't into technology. I was working at a computer store at the time. But I mean, I didn't know. I, I I knew that a Cat5 cable was a Cat5 cable, not an Ethernet cable, but I still didn't really understand how computers, like, worked. So, anyway, I'm not qualified, but in those early days, I'm imagining maybe it made sense, because packaging was was a different thing then, and really, like, most of the open source in the entire world could be fit onto a couple of CDs, like... That was a realistic expectation. When you got a Linux distribution and you got all of the CDs, you 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 had just purchased all the open source software in the universe. Like maybe not every single line of code, but I mean a good chunk of it. It was literally, it could fit onto a CD or a couple of CDs maybe. So that was then. And then open source kind of got into a big deal. And these days, certainly you couldn't, you couldn't take, I mean, even, I think even, well, I know, absolutely no. Even the venerable Debian repository, which is famously vast, that doesn't include all the open source software. It probably can't. There's just not enough Debian packagers to go out and find all the open source software and to package it up into a .deb file. It's just, it's not physically possible. Like, that's just, at this point, the scales have tipped where the amount of available open source software outweighs, probably by orders of magnitude, (laughs) um, outweighs the number of people available to 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 package it into uh into a format that that distribution has deemed appropriate. Now, early early on, I feel like the Linux world, and this is down to us. It's all our own fault, as most things are. Um, I think early on, it was down to us to come together and figure out which one package format we wanted to use. We we should we 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 could have and should have picked one, and we didn't. We picked a lot. And I, you know, I say we, as if though we were all invited to a big meeting on the topic and, you know, we, we weren't, I mean, at least I wasn't. Um, so, you know, like somebody somewhere made a choice of like, yeah, we're not going to use this one packaging format. And you can imagine why it just doesn't, it, if you don't have to, then, then why, why switch away from the format that you happen to prefer? There's no good reason 
to do that. I mean, there there are arguments, the all the common arguments. Oh, that, well, you could do it for the good of humanity. It would it's better to standardize on one thing, so we all should make a sacrifice and just choose the one packaging format. But then, which packaging format? Which one is the right one? And even if we have the correct packaging format, then how do we ensure that the packaging format is agreeable to all the different distributions that use it? Because maybe one distribution wants to put those configuration files in this directory, but the other distribution wants to put those same configuration files in that other directory. Could, I'm, I'm, I imagine we could have scripted around little things like that, but let's just let's just say that for whatever reason we didn't choose a packaging format, and so now we're here, and we have we have developers who could feasibly be coming to the table, the Linux table, with their software, and they look at at what the table requires them to submit, and there's no single answer. How to package something for Linux? Well, here's a whole book on all the things that that question could possibly mean. Flatpak at least provides a single answer for people who want to just package their software for, you know, Linux. Which Linux? That doesn't matter. Just Linux. But which version of Linux? Doesn't matter just Linux. Flatpak provides that answer, and it does so in a very consistent way. I, I used to be a really big fan of AppImage. I'm not currently not a fan of AppImage, but I do acknowledge that Flatpak has a lot of standardized tooling around it to ensure that that's an a pretty approachable way to package applications for Linux. It has layers of SDKs that sit underneath all of the Flatpak stuff so that you can truly just target Linux. And pretty much any Linux, as long as it can do Flatpak, and I mean, heck, I'm running Flatpaks on Slackware, so I don't know what Linux wouldn't be able to do Flatpak. As long as it can do Flatpak, it can run these applications. It's a brilliant, brilliant system. Is it offensive on lots of levels? Yeah, it is. It's like horrible. There's like all kinds of things that annoy me about Flatpaks. The fact that I can't just launch a thing from a terminal without several scripts that uh, abstract the name, uh, the naming scheme of Flatpak away from the stupid way they do it. Uh, the fact that you can't use Flatpak to package up terminal applications, that's not very useful to a lot of us. Like, that's that really isn't useful at all. So what's that all about? What package format then do we use? I guess the argument is that if you want a terminal application, then you're probably, well, you're, you're probably good enough to, to just compile it yourself or something, so don't worry about the packaging format. Um, there's also the fact that GIMP, for instance, is 11 megabytes on Slackware. That's the package size of approximately, maybe 18 now, I don't know. It's, it's megabytes, right? Just tens of megabytes. Flatpak of GIMP is something like 180 megabytes. And that's after you've installed several hundreds of megabytes of SDKs, the things that are called SDKs. What do you need an SDK for? Well, these are the things that you need to run to, to ensure that that GIMP flat pack runs as it is expected. It's compiled against certain things. What's it compiled against? Well, it's been compiled against these SDKs. So you're, in, you're essentially installing Linux on your Linux box. Does that just feel wrong? It does. It feels wrong to a lot of people. I mean, it feels wrong sometimes to me as well, except the convenience is so great that I don't really care in the end. And in theory, hard drive space is cheap now, right? 
That's what everyone says, so I guess it really doesn't matter how much space it takes up. Of course, I acknowledge cheap is definitely, definitely relative, and, and, and it's really not enough to say, well, hard drive disk is cheap, uh, everybody's got the internet, all of these things, all of these assumptions, you know, like, it's, it's completely, completely wrong. So I'm not saying, again, that Flatpak is, like, ultimately the where we wanted to be ever, but I, I do think it's where we've ended up. This is the solution that we needed a long time ago, and because we're doing things the certain way, this is where we are. We're, we're at the point of where Flatpak provides a single target against a predictable set of libraries so people can package their applications for the OS that we want to use, that we want to be using, that we want applications to be on. We want those things. Flatpak makes it super, super easy. And that's something that we should promote, frankly. I mean, that's huge. It's a big deal. And I, I really do, like Deep Geek says, I think ultimately that's the only way it can go forward. I just don't see how the ever-increasing amount of open-source software can hope to get the time and the attention that it deserves from really not a, a great pool of of packagers, especially when you consider how, how difficult it is to become a packager. I have tried to become a, an official packager on for Fedora for ages, and I just can't seem to figure out what the process is. I mean, I've gone, I, I've, I've had bugs in, I've had packages in queue waiting for approval and, and I'll get feedback on the RPM and I'll, I'll make the changes and just nothing seems to ever trigger success. I don't understand like what, what the last step is. I just don't get it, but I don't know. It's never worked out for me. Maybe I haven't tried hard enough. I feel like I have. Maybe not. I don't know. It's not easy to become like an official packager, apparently. So that's a, a barrier as well. So not only do we not have a lot of packagers, really, relative to the amount of open source software being produced, but, but we also, we require certain qualifications. We, we want to be able to trust these people. We want to see that they're providing quality packages and so on and and so by necessity it's it's a it's a relatively small pool of people okay um deep geek says i also agree in i also agreed with your comments about vanity distributions like hannah montana linux themes should be a package of some sort interestingly kde already supports this but it's done through a gui by going to a theming store, when you do this, the theme skin you download goes into a magical directory in your home direct in your home folder, which sets the look and feel for your desktop and your login screen. Since you haven't been asked for a root password, this is the only place this can be set up. This does tie together because Flatpak supports a quote local install option, which puts the Flatpak in, you guessed it, your home directory. This all this all ties together when you consider the new the, the, the new work being done with immutable distributions. It truly becomes possible to just run a Linux that gives you X or Wayland plus Flatpak, mount your home directory as a separate file system or data set, and you can stop pretty much thinking about the distribution. It becomes elegantly agnostic in that way. Okay, so this is uh, CLAT2 again, and yes, I absolutely agree with this. This is a, this is the ideal, and I think it's been the ideal for a long time. Like, if you think back to Solaris and things like that, where it was really, really common to just dump stuff into slash opt, or or into user local, you know, user local, whatever. Um, there, there have been for a very long time little sort of sub, subsystems or, or sub file systems within Linux, uh, within within the POSIX ecosystem, and 
And the idea was that there was a quote-unquote vendor install, the thing that you got from your operating system supplier. might not literally be a vendor. You might have downloaded it for $0, but you got this this OS and you installed it on your computer. That's 100% repeatable. You can download that. You can erase that computer, download the thing again, reinstall, and you'll have the same computer. Now, when you start introducing users onto that system, that part becomes a little bit more delicate. And for a really, really long time, like up until still happening right now, um, we've kind of mixed those two worlds together. The stuff that the user puts on the system sometimes has to go into some 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 of the stuff where the vendor stuff is. You install something and it goes into user lib 64, not user local lib 64. It goes into user lib 64. And even if it does go into user local lib 64, how do you get to how do you get to local? How do you back that up? Now you're backing up home and local. So it gets a little bit confusing. I, I install a lot of stuff to opt slash opt. I put Firefox in there. I used to put LibreOffice in there, although I think I might be running something different for LibreOffice now. Blender, I think, used to go in there. Yeah, I feel like I've got a lot of weird stuff in, in slash opt. And I like it because they're they're there, independent sort of of everything else happening on the OS. And I, I understand that those are those are things that I've installed. I've put them in slash opt. So what DeepGeek is talking about here is is the tendency, the the increasing luckily and in tendency to just put stuff into the user's home directory. Now the drawback to that is if your system is truly truly multi-user, then if I install GIMP as a flat pack, you don't have access to GIMP still even though it's been installed as Flatpak. Well, that Flatpak went into my home directory, which you don't have in your user account. You don't have access to that. So there's a drawback of it there. But, I mean, realistically, like, how many of us have that scenario? I would be interested in knowing. I, I don't think it's many people. I don't want to ever lose the functionality of multi-user Linux. I think that would be a huge step back. But at the same time, like, functionally, my systems are, are single-user. The, the multi-user people on my network have their own computer. So it doesn't, it doesn't really, it doesn't matter that I am installing GIMP to my home directory. And the advantage there is that when I back up my home directory, I'm also backing up GIMP. And it doesn't have to be GIMP. It can be any flat pack or it can be any important configuration that I have that I don't want to break every time I, I update my or, or change my computer or whatever. The, the idea of a, a truly portable home directory is kind of a holy grail in in the Linux world, I feel. And I guess not everybody wants it. I mean, that might not be your experience. I mean, certainly I don't actually need that 100% on my system right now. But I mean, at one point in my life, I very much wanted that. So much so that I carried my home directory around with me in my pocket. I had it as a USB thumb drive. Now that wasn't literally my home directory because I, I wouldn't like put it into a computer and mount it as slash home would have been an interesting experiment, but that's not what I was interested in doing. But that was where all of my personal data was. All the stuff that I wanted to work on across different devices would go onto that thumb drive. And in fact, I would back up that thumb drive into my computer. So I would plug that into the computer and then synchronize from the thumb drive to the local machine to ensure that all the files were were backed up. So I think I think this is a really good I, I think this is definitely the right direction that we need to go of just this concept of let's put the the applications and data you care about go into a, a location 
that you have complete control over. And, and there's, there's a lot of freedom there because you're building up an operating environment that is your own. You know, you've got all the fonts that all of your design files require. You've got all the Python libraries that your little software, your, your custom software requires. You even got your favorite applications as flat packs. So they go everywhere with you. That just, that's a powerful, powerful idea. Um, and, you know, I don't know if that's like the literal future. I mean, I, for a while I was thinking the literal future was that we would have cell phones in our pockets that we would then just, when you sit down at your screen, you just sync up your screen and your cell phone and, and now you're using Linux. You know, the, the idea of convergence, um, and that hasn't really happened so far either, but maybe that's part of the future. Maybe because these, uh, a mobile phone is, is really mostly immutable. That's not, you know, the, the OS itself is basically an immutable image, uh, that you then add stuff on top of. So maybe this is part of that. And certainly, I mean, I, I did try to use Silverblue again uh, as as an actual operating environment, and it had a lot of problems, lots of problems. was not not a good fit, <laughs> as it turned out. Um, that was pretty painful, to be honest. Uh, I could I could enumerate. I could say like things like the UID wasn't trans wasn't behaving correctly. The containers uh, weren't finding the the user environment correctly the user environment wasn't interacting with the containers correctly it was just it was really bad all around and i had to i had to switch off of it i i gave it a good 2 to 3 weeks i think and then i just had to bail because it was it was not great so i don't know that we're there yet but i i think that that's the direction that we could be moving in and i i think i think it's probably ultimately a pretty good direction to go into I mean, if for nothing else, then if something goes wrong with the computer, it just feels good to be able to just grab your home directory and walk away knowing that everything, once you reinstall the OS or get a new computer with with that OS on it, once you get that, everything will be back. Like you won't have to go through all of the different settings that it'll, it'll all be there. That's what I want. I think, why wouldn't anybody want that really? Uh, this is Deep Geek again. On a separate note, you asked for software suggestions. So I wanted to recommend CDM, that is Console Display Manager, for your investigation. It creates a themable in-curses-like display manager, and you can hack the menu so that it can be used to either start an X session or a terminal se session or a, a console session. It sets up by adding uh, to the profile.d uh, directory and only activates on TTY1. Just in case it hangs, you can still log in regularly without it on the other virtual TTYs. I took a look at this, and it's definitely of interest. Uh, it's written in Bash. It's a completely Bash pr uh, project, and and yeah, it it, it replaces essentially uh, something like SDDM or or LightDM or GDM. I actually, I don't know if it would replace GDM because I think GDM is really really tightly bound to GNOME, so I'm not sure what sort of control you have over that these days, but, um, I mean, I don't know that you don't, I'm just saying I don't know. But, um, certainly on Slackware, this was a really interesting solution, and it is, it's just, it is a, a way to launch your, 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 a login session through sort of a, a login prompt that, that's sort of vaguely graphical. It's in curses, so it, it, it renders little, you know, highly pixelated graphic within, uh, just a text-only console, and it has interactivity. You can use arrows and things like that so to, to, to navigate the screen. 
is it really like all that better than just a text prompt? I think it depends. Um, it's fun, first of all. So there's that. But I think it kind of depends. Like if you want, uh, if if you want, you know, a text, a text only prompt isn't really a prompt, is it? it? It is a, I mean, it is, it's just a prompt, but it's not prompting the user for anything. You might figure out that it's prompting you for your username and your password. I think that, that arguably is something that people could figure out. But then once, once, once you're in, you're just dropped to a normal bash prompt, and and you you have to know what what to start. I mean, could you do it if you booted Slackware? Would you know how to get the desktop going? You might. You might think, oh, I th- I think I heard something about a command called start X. But I mean, that's not necessarily the right way to do it these days. I mean, really, you want to just do SDDM semicolon exit. Probably that gets you to the SDDM login screen, and then you can get in as a user. Whereas start X kind of requires you to be root, and then you're logging into a root desktop. So I mean, it's it's complex, is what I'm saying. And CDM makes it a lot less complex because it doesn't assume that you know the secret incantation of the right way to get into a graphical server or even to just a a text only prompt so very cool little project actually you should check it out i'll put a a link in the show notes it's uh it is unsurprisingly github.com slash uh ever ever tiro e-v-e-r-t-i-r-o uh and then slash cdm console display manager really really fascinating bash only that's when i saw that that's when it got me bash only that's very cool that's beat geeks feedback that's all of it that's my feedback on his feedback i think that's everything i've got to say for this episode then so thank you very much for listening dear listener and uh i will of course be right here again next week talk to you then Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open
I now know that I have created a mental vampire, a fiend that needs to drain the intellect to survive and multiply.